Well, good, good morning. Wow, that'll wake you up, won't it? How are we doing? All right, are we, can you hear me? No? I can always switch to the, oh, wait, or is it this one? Okay, you're not hearing me here? Oh, yes, you are. Now you are. Can you hear me now? Okay, I feel like it's a Verizon commercial. All right. All right, if you're visiting with us, this doesn't happen every Sunday, but sometimes we, we, we have these things. Um, while we're on corrections, let me just mention one other thing, because I, I don't want to um, disappoint you. You see the title up there, which is fine, and it looks like we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I got some bad news. It's a lot more than that. Okay, we're actually going to go chapter 2, verse 1, down through 3, 6 in our time together this morning. So we'll, uh, we'll work with that. Well, I wanted to talk about, are we, are we good sound-wise, folks? So-so? I, I, can, I can project, you know that. Um, so <laughs> we didn't mean this on purpose, but I wanted to start out by talking about disruptions. <laughs> But I wasn't thinking of that this exactly. We, um, we don't like disruptions, do we? Don't like it in a service here. And we don't like it in the world in which we live. We, we don't like the fact that we have a pandemic. That's a disruption. We don't, we don't like that. By God's grace, we're moving through that. Um, and, and we live in a world where some people think that the way to make changes is to be disruptive in a very negative way, like rioting, which is always wrong, folks. Always wrong. The Bible's very clear on that. So there's certain kinds of disruptions that are absolutely wrong to engage in. However, it strikes me as interesting when you look at Jesus Christ that he is a disruptor of the world in which he lived. And, and I want you to notice, Jesus lived in a world where he wasn't the only individual that stepped on the scene and said, I'm the Messiah. I'm a prophet-like individual. When you read the literature of the day, Josephus will tell us about this. When you read the literature of the day, there's all kinds of would-be messiahs coming on the scene. Most of which are saying, Let's overturn the Roman government. That was not Christ's approach, was it? Matter of fact, when he stood before Pilate, and Pilate said, so are you trying to compete with us? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my followers would rise up against, but that's not my approach. The way he disrupted his world was he started with the religious establishment because the religious establishment in his day was flawed. They, they had gone off kilter. They had lost the focus. And so when Jesus steps on the scene, he turns the religious leaders upside down, not by picketing at the Sanhedrin, but with courage and confidence, speaking the truth and living the truth in all of his relationships. So what I want to do today 
the reason we have a larger section, you say, why are you speaking on so many verses? Because in Mark's gospel, Mark is purposely putting these together like this. Because what you'll find in every one of these stories, there's five of them. I'll move through them quickly, so relax. I'll speed up as time goes on. Um, But in each one of those stories, the why question is asked. By the religious leaders, initially in those first four stories, where Jesus does something and they say, why are you doing that? You see, Jesus is disrupting, isn't he? And they don't like it. And they're coming, they're pushing back. And when they push back, he explains why. Four times in this passage, they ask why, why, why? You're not supposed to do it that way. And Jesus responds. And in the last story, Jesus poses the question why to them. So it's very fascinating that this is a passage where you've got Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus is, as we've heard in the previous weeks, Jesus is doing a whole bunch of miracles. There's popularity. But as the popularity is increasing, so is the opposition to Jesus from the religious establishment. And so Jesus comes on the scene here, and with courage and confidence, he moves into the lives of others, and the religious establishment doesn't like it. And that's how he disrupts. And folks, I will argue that Jesus becomes a model for us to courageously and confidently move into all of our relationships where the gospel is central. And that will make the difference for our world more than anything else. So watch what he does. The first story comes in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Let me just read the first section here. Text says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So, can you see what's happening? Jesus is back in Capernaum, and it may be that he's back in Peter's house, because he often was there. We know that from a previous section. I don't know for sure, but perhaps. Jesus is in this house, but when he comes back to Capernaum, everybody wants to get close to Jesus. And the house is packed. You can't get in. I mean, it's worse than sardines. You can't get in there. All the way to the door and beyond. Four guys who are deeply concerned about their friend who is a paralytic. He can't move. He's on on a stretcher. They've got him on a stretcher. They come walking up to the house and they're trying. Can you imagine what that's like? Have you ever been in a line where people try to butt in line? Do you like not hate that? Okay, we kind of know that. So, so here they are. They're probably saying, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And, and they're finding at some point, we'll never get inside. So they're sweaty and they're thinking and they're thinking, we got to get this guy to Jesus. They're looking around. And one of them hits the other guy and says, I got an idea. Let's get to the roof. I don't know how they got to the roof. Some homes in antiquity would have steps up to the roof. Maybe they did it that way. Maybe they hopped on somebody else's roof and jumped over. I have no idea. But somehow they got that guy with the stretcher, four guys, got him up on top of that roof. Now the roofs in antiquity, what they would often do is they would have timbers uh, as, as kind of a base for the roof. 
And then they would often, maybe two, three feet apart. And and then they would kind of put sticks in between. And then they would layer it with soil and and, and, and uh, other twigs and branches, whatever. And the whole thing ended up being about two feet thick. And so much so that it would often grow grass on the top of it. You can kind of imagine that, right? So can you imagine what this must have been like? Here's Jesus speaking truth into people's lives, pointing them to himself, when all of a sudden you're hearing this banging, scratching, clawing noise up top. Before you know it, They have broken and dug a hole through there, gone down two feet, moving everything, not the beams, but but everything else. (laughs) And then I've often wondered, how do you like, how do you lower him down in a way that you don't drop him off the stretcher? But somehow they had it figured out, you know, and they're, 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 I mean, they're just, and, but you know, you're listening to Jesus all of a sudden, you're feeling soot on you and you're going like, what in the world is all this? You see? (laughs) And, and boy, He's finally placed right in front of Jesus. You're talking about a grand entry. That is a grand entry. Listen to what happens. Verse 3. Some men came bringing him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was, was lying on. Now, folks... I want you to think about this because this is really interesting. When you read your scripture, you ought to be asking, huh, why? I wonder why that happened. Wouldn't you think the first thing Jesus would do is look at that guy and say, be healed? You know? Isn't that what you're expecting? What happens next? Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Do you think the guy was disappointed? Do you think the four guys were disappointed? I mean, they're going like, man, we did a lot of work to get him here in front of Jesus. And all Jesus says is, son, your sins are forgiven. We want like a healing. We don't know all the ins and outs of what was going on here. It's a really interesting passage. It reminds me of a passage over in James chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, where you have the context of somebody who is sick and you have, you have leaders rallying around this person and praying and the text says, and if they have committed sins, they will be forgiven them. I, I kind of envision this text a little bit like that. So my, my guess is, all because somebody is sick doesn't mean they've sinned. We all know that, right? You, you, we don't, we, you don't, Point fingers at people who are sick and never say, you're sick because you did something wrong. Jesus will counter that again and again in the Gospels. Fair enough. But it may be in this case that the reason he was a paralytic was tied into something he had done at some point, maybe, or maybe his response after was inappropriate. I don't know. Here's what I know. When this man was dropped in front of Jesus... And these, these men were saying in faith, this man's answer is Jesus. They were exactly correct in that faith. But this man's greatest need in that moment was not healing. Do you realize that? This man's greatest need was forgiveness. 
And Jesus gave this man initially what was his deepest problem and his deepest need and said, you're forgiven. Well, the real tension then begins in the next verse. Look at verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Actually, he was right on track on that one. I mean, they were right on track on that one. They're right. Ultimately, who can forgive sins? Only God. But this one that was standing before them, the Messiah, was the God-man. He was God and he was man all at the same time. But they were saying, no, you, you, you can't do that. And, and, and frankly, what had happened with Pharisaism in the first century, it had drifted into a religion that wasn't about, at the end of the day, saying, we are hopeless, helpless sinners in desperate need of God. You know what it had drifted into? We can do this. Stiff upper lip, man. We can make it happen. And so the idea that forgiveness is the ultimate issue, and who's this guy think he is? Are you kidding? When you read the Old Testament, what we need more than anything else is for God to come in the person of his son and to forgive us. And they missed that because they didn't need that, to be perfectly honest with you. They were content the way they were. I love what Jesus does. Look at how he responds in verse 8. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. Can you imagine what that's like? They're, They're thinking in their hearts, this guy is blaspheming God. This guy's nothing. He's not Messiah. I don't know what to do with all those miracles. But you're thinking all this, and Jesus says, okay, I'm going to talk to you guys. You're going like, whoa. He's reading my mind, right? He knew exactly what they were thinking. And he says, why are you thinking these things? Yikes. And then he poses a question. Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven, or... Get up, take your mat, and walk. Which is easier to say? The one that's easier to say is your sins are forgiven. You know why? Because you have no empirical data whether I actually did that. I mean, if I look out here right now and say, Elizabeth, I proclaim your sins are forgiven. How do you know whether I'm right or wrong? I mean, you you have no way of knowing. So Jesus says, Saying that is easy, but doing it is much harder. Whereas saying to somebody, be healed, is harder to say because it's, it, it can be empirically va- verified, right or wrong, but it's actually easier to do. The harder thing is forgiving sins. So Jesus says, but I want you to know that The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he turned and he points to the paralytic and he says, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, 
and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. And that wasn't coming from the religious establishment. That was coming from the other people. Can you imagine what that was like? And do you see what Jesus is doing here? The priority need of humanity is not physical healing. The physical healing was a sign to point to say, you're old, so that you might know that I have authority to forgive sins, I'm going to do this act to, to validate that act. Do you see? The great need of humanity is the forgiveness of sins. And frankly, that had gone over the heads of the religious establishment. They could do it on their own. And Jesus says, no, you can't. The mantra of the Pharisees was, we can. The mantra of Jesus is, only I can. And that's the difference. It gets more than just that. This self-righteousness is not only seen in this first story, but look at the second story. Would you love to see what that looks like when Jesus says, get up, get your mat, and go home. And he picked up his mat. He got up. He's paralyzed, folks. That, I mean, what's that like to see? Then he bends over and picks up the mat. And he walks right out before everybody. I don't know, I don't know what he did, but, but he just walks out. What, wouldn't that have been an incredible scene to see? Wonderful. Look at the second one. Verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. That's what Jesus, Jesus wants them to hear the word, the truth of the gospel, that they can have a relationship with God through him, that, that there's hope, there's forgiveness, all those wonderful things. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, who is also called Matthew, we know from the other gospels, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he said, follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Oh, I'd love to know what Levi knew about Jesus prior to this, wouldn't you? So Levi had had enough interaction with Jesus. He had heard enough of his story that when Jesus looked at him and said, follow me, here is a man involved in being a tax collector. It's worse than being an IRS agent, okay? Um, he was involved in tax collecting. The Jews thought he was a betrayer of his people because he'd be a tax collector. Tax collectors were often dishonest individuals. And he heard as Jesus walked by and Jesus said, you can come and have a relationship with me. He thought in his heart, me? Really? And he walked away from what he was doing. Just enamored by Christ. Christ wants a tax collector? I'm in, man. I'm, I'm in. This is going to create a great problem for the religious leaders. Because everybody knows that birds of a feather flock together. And you got to watch out who you hang out with. Look what Jesus does in verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and with his disciples. For there were many who followed him. It wasn't just one tax collector. There's all kinds of people that the Pharisees would have said, no, no, don't have anything to do with them. They're too far away from God. 
Not for Jesus. Never for Jesus. And Jesus is there with them. Verse 16. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's the scum. They don't get a chance with God. Or so they thought. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That is one of the most in-your-face statements Jesus makes. You know what he's saying? Jesus says, I am the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the King, the God-man, the hope of humanity. I have come, and I've come to humanity who is lost and sinful and cannot have a relationship with God on their own. I have come for sinners because everyone is a sinner. He says, I've not come for the righteous. That's a... That's paradoxical statement by Christ. Because you know what the truth is? There is no righteous person. What Jesus is saying is this. It's cryptic. Jesus is saying, if you think you're righteous on your own, I can't help you. Because I have come for humanity who must recognize we are undone rebels in the face of God and we desperately need a relationship with God through Jesus. For people that are there, they are swept into the kingdom. And for people that say, no, I'm pretty good on my own. Thank you. I'm righteous. Jesus says, I can't help you. I can't. Folks, do you see how disruptive this is for human religiosity? Because religion, so many religions are about man making it to God. True Christianity is about God becoming a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he breaks through that religiosity. He breaks through that self-righteousness with these same stories and says, I am the only forgiver and I will forgive anyone who recognizes where they are. Wow. He's really shaking things up, but it gets worse. Look at the next story. And he moves here from self-righteousness to legalism in these last three stories. Look at what he says. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? You know what they were saying? And, and folks, in this day, um, there was, there was what, what had happened with fasting is, there were fasts in the Old Testament, clearly, clearly, and often national fasts, and fair enough, fair enough. What had happened in the first century is, the religious establishment came along and said, now look, if you're going to be the right kind of person before God, you got to be fasting a lot more often than that. So the Pharisees instituted Two days a week for fasting. 
Now, of course, they were so good at it that they wanted everybody to know that they were fasting in those two days. So people say, wow, isn't that guy holy? And they were saying, look, everyone should be fasting. And what they did is they, they, they took something, which is nothing wrong with fasting. And we often choose as individuals to fast, right? People will choose to do that on their own before God. It's a wonderful thing. That's different than me layering on top of that and saying, if you're going to be truly spiritual, you've got to have this spiritual discipline in your life. Twice a week. They even designated the days. How does Jesus respond to that? Jesus is not against spiritual disciplines. He's fine with people fasting as as they choose to before God. He wants people to pray. He wants people to listen to the Torah, the, uh, the, the Bible, all, all those things. But they were totally off on the time frame in which they found themselves. Because the reason so many fasted around the time of the first century is because they felt hopeless. Here we are, Roman overlords in Palestine, Everything is going terrible. There must be something wrong with us as people. Let's have some kind of reversal. Let's pre- it's a somber time. It's a sad time. And it was a somber and sad time. I don't want to minimize what they went through. But they had forgotten. They did not realize that the hope of the world, which brings joy, is standing right before them. Which changes my attitude on everything. So Jesus says this. How can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. Jesus gives a series of illustrations, and the first one's about a bridegroom. And he's going to say, in this period of time, Where Christ is on the scene. Yeah, he's going to be gone. Death, burial, and resurrection during that period of time. They're going to be grieved to the hill because they're going to think our hope is gone. But he's coming back. He's resurrecting. Okay. But for that short period of time. But while the bridegroom is with you. And folks, the bridegroom has come. It's Jesus. And Jesus changes everything, including our spiritual disciplines. The bridegroom is with you. It changes everything. A couple years ago. I was doing a wedding, and um, I've really, I mean, I, I've done many weddings in my, in my day, but um, I, I, I never had this happen before. I had a member of the bride's family at the rehearsal, while, while I'm, you know, trying to practice, okay, now you guys come in now, we'll stand like this, and it be, you know, all the stuff you do. So I'm trying to go through all that, and this person is out there audibly weeping. I mean, it was, it was an embarrassment because they actually had an issue with the couple, which frankly, they shouldn't have had an issue with the couple. And I don't want to get into all that. What doesn't matter? And I, I remember, I've never had to do this before, but after the rehearsal, I had to go up to this individual and uh, I, I said, you know, this is totally unacceptable. This is their day. If you don't like it, 
you don't have to come. But you are not going to create this problem for them. This is a wonderful day to rejoice in what God is doing. And I then went through why this couple, two married, not married, they weren't married, sorry, two singles who loved God and loved each other and were ready to get married. And I just said, you need to go home and pray about this thing because this isn't going to happen tomorrow for the wedding, I'm just telling you, okay? I mean, I don't like doing that kind of stuff, but I'm thinking like, this was, this was not good. Oh, in God's good grace, this person went home, spent time with their mate, prayed, and when they came back the next day, they were the most joyful person you could have ever imagined. And I just said, miracle of miracles, you know. But that's not appropriate at a wedding, is it, folks? If we're a wedding up here, and all of a sudden people, <laughs> you go, what's that? And Jesus is saying in this text, the bridegroom is here. We rally around, and, and it doesn't mean that we deny that we live in a world filled with pain and opposition. The scriptures, Jesus is very clear about all that. However, in the midst of all of that, we are people of great hope because the bridegroom is here. And that changes the way we even handle our spiritual disciplines. There is hope and joy that permeates everything. The text then moves in the last two stories to the issue of Sabbath observance. Now, you know, that's not the kind of thing that most people living in American church struggle with. My guess is nobody here was saying, you know, I'm really having a hard time on the Sabbath. (laughs) But in the ancient world, that was a struggle. Because that, that day, that Sabbath day was to be a holy day that was given over to reflecting upon God, enriching your relationship with him so that you would go away from that experience closer to God and understanding him better. Okay? Fair enough. But remember, like I told you, the Pharisees had this way of kind of layering on top of what God had said. They did it with fasting. And they did it with Sabbath observance. If we had time, we don't. I've got a, uh, made, made copies of some, some Jewish literature from the first, well, actually, end of the second century, too. Uh, coming out of what they call their Mishnah, which was written around 200 AD. And also material, have, you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Qumran community. And, and coming out of the Qumran community. And in both the Qumran community and the later Jewish Mishnaic writings, when they talk about the Sabbath, and they have entire sections which unpack the Sabbath, man, do they layer. I mean, you've got some basic statements in the Old Testament, and then they say, oh yeah, by the way, if you're going to walk, you can walk this far, but you can't walk any farther than that because if you take three more steps, that's work. You can't do it on the Sabbath. But you can go this far. And you can do this. You can sew, but you can't do that. You can do this, but you can't do that. I mean, it was like you had to have a checklist out to say, wait a second, can I, can I, can I do that one on the Sabbath? No. Oh, okay, sorry. That one? Yeah, how come? Don't worry about it. Just do it. Okay, whatever. You know, I mean, that's what had happened in the first century. Layer upon layer upon a good institution for the Jews that was now layered with all kinds of extras. Isn't that what legalism does? Legalism often takes something very good and it just keeps layering on top of it. 
And so I can feel better than you because you say, because I can say, okay, you can say, yeah, I, I pray and read my Bible. And I say, yeah, but I pray more than you. So you're bad and I'm better. Isn't it easy to do that? The scripture will have none of that, folks. But that's what happens with religiosity. And Jesus is going to disrupt that one. How? By just living out and speaking the truth into life. That's what he does. Look at what it says here in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields... And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Do you folks, folks, just so you know, there is nothing in the Old Testament that said it was wrong to pluck grain. Matter of fact, you could pluck, the Old Testament will say this, if I'm kind of walking along, I don't know, I walk through Dave's uh, grain field. Any day of the week, I can pluck a couple of those grains if I'm hungry, and I can eat them. The Old Testament says, but you can't take a bag, think Biner, because that's Dave's stuff. You can have have a couple, but no taking a bag in there and selling Dave's grain. You can't do that kind of thing. Okay, So plucking the grain was something that was permissible in the Old Testament. Not really a work, is it? Well, the Pharisees came along and said, that's a work, and you can't do that. And here these guys are feeling like they're starving. And Pharisees are saying, fine, starve. What does Jesus say? I love this. Look at his response in verse 25. Jesus answered, have you never read? Oh, how do you think that went over with them? <laughs> you know, here are the religious leaders. Are saying, hey, do this, do that. Jesus said, do you, do you, uh, do you know your Bible? <laughs> yeah, just, anyway. Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God. He ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Jesus said, in layering the Sabbath, you have forgotten the essence of the Sabbath. And Jesus says, let me illustrate. Whenever religious ceremony becomes so important that it supersedes true human need, you've misunderstood the, human, the, the religious ceremony. He says, do you remember when David came in and he and his guys were like just super hungry and he, 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 he saw the priest and he said, hey, can we have something to eat? And the guy said, hey, well, hey, hey, hey. All we got is the consecrated bread. You know, that's the stuff we put out and it makes a statement about God being the one who provides for us and it's, it's really, really, really important. So we got several of those there, but the only ones that can eat them are the priests. No, no. You know what the priest realized? That ceremony would not trump the human need of people who needed to eat. And so the priest said, have at it, David. You can have that bread. And Jesus said, that practice by Christ shows that a religious ceremony 
is never more important than a human need when they begin to conflict with each other. And so Jesus goes on to say this. Look at his, look at his uh, response. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he makes this last statement, which, is, which just blows you away. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. How do you think that went over with them? Can you imagine? These are the religious leaders that they have a whole system that they're living by. And they've layered and layer upon layer of tradition that everybody's got to live by and they're the ones that are going to explain everything to them and all that stuff's going on. And Jesus comes in and says, you don't even understand the scripture. That cannot supersede human need. And what's more than that, the Sabbath was, was, was made for man. Man was not created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was to enrich our relationship with God. So when there's a human need in the midst of that, meet the human need. And Jesus says, as long as we're on the topic, I am the son of man, the Messiah. And just so we're clear on this, I'm Lord of that too. (laughs) Probably didn't go over so well. You know what I mean? I mean, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And what he was saying is this. You can't understand any of those things from the Old Testament unless you see it fulfilled in me and explained by me. I am the centerpiece. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the bridegroom who has come. All of life must be seen through me for I am the central issue in all of life. Which either makes Jesus the son of God or the most egotistical person who ever stepped on the earth. You know what I mean? I mean, if I got up and said to you, look, all of life is about Doug Finkbeiner and how he explains it. I mean, you'd empty this place out in a second. And you should. Don't ever come back. No, I, I don't believe that, okay? Okay. Right, that's right. Exactly, right? You're out of here. You ought to be out of here. That would be a cult. That would be a cult. But it was true of Christ. He is the very center. Everything gets understood through him. Everything from the past, even the Sabbath. He who would be the ultimate fulfillment of the Sabbath, as we learn from other passages. They're pretty ticked off at him. So they're thinking, let's set him up. All right, he he went in and we we questioned him on the Sabbath thing, but we're going to really push him. So what they do is they find a guy who is sick. And they're going to put that guy center stage in the synagogue because they they have another theory. The guy they're putting center stage, he's sick. He needs to be healed, which would be really nice. But it doesn't have to happen today. It's not a life-threatening sickness. He can live on for a long time. So let's put him center stage, and let's see what Jesus does with him. And that's the next passage, chapter 3, verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. You know what troubles me about that? A lot of things trouble me about it. 
that they would use and abuse a man with an ailment. Do you see that? Here, this, how long has he had this shriveled hand? How did it happen? None of which I know. But they see this guy and they say, let's grab him and see what Jesus will do with him. Stand there, don't move, buddy. <laughs> Here comes Jesus, let's watch. That's using people. So what's Jesus going to do? Look what happens. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. <laughs> wow. I mean, Jesus is not like, hey, hey, just come over here in the corner with me. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Would you stand up right here in front of me? Like, everyone's going to see this one. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remain silent. You know what Jesus is saying? When there is this human need and people are suffering, you cannot use religious ceremony as an excuse not to do good. Because if you do, that act of omission is actually an act of sin. That is a really strong statement. And he puts it right at them. Here's what's fascinating, folks. You know how this passage ends? After Jesus says it's about doing good and not doing evil, if I do nothing, that would be an evil act, Jesus says. I will do something for this person is suffering. That's what Jesus says. The very end of this passage in verse 6, the Pharisees go out and what do they want to do? They plot how they might what? Kill him. So they literally are, are plotting to kill and take life on the Sabbath day. Who are the hypocrites? Do you see? Jesus in verse 5, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. I don't want to read through that too quickly. I, I don't know about you, but It's, it's hard for me to both be angry at somebody and deeply grieved over them at the same time. That's possible. We've all had the experience. But you know what I mean? You either kind of grieve and you feel bad because you know they're not experiencing what they could experience and you're just grieved about it. Or else you're angry because you're saying what you're doing is hurting other people. And Jesus does both at the exact same time. He is not saying, in his anger, he's not saying like, get out of my life, you Pharisees. I don't want to have anything to do with you. He's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I'm angered that you would not recognize the importance of loving your neighbor. But I'm grieved for you as individuals that you do not see who I am and what I can do in your life too. Do you see? He has that perfect balance. Don't you wish we could keep that balance, folks? It's tough. I mean, I'm just telling you, it's tough. And Jesus does both at the same time. But he looks at the man. Stretch out your hand. What would that be like? Here I am. I mean, I don't know what it was like exactly. Stretch out your hand and... I 
I, I, I mean, wow. I mean, you, you, you just, you have, it takes faith even to do that. You know, like, and he does it. And his hand was completely restored. I mean, he could have thrown a baseball again. Then the Pharisee, they, uh, that was a joke. They didn't play baseball. Okay, whatever. Yeah. That was just a, that was a throwaway. Sorry about that. Okay, whatever. All right, all right. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The one who does not allow religious ceremony to keep him from loving the suffering is the one who is hated and despised and they seek to actually kill him because he loves. Wow. Don't tell me the gospels aren't interesting. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's all, I mean, when you're reading this, you're going like, that would make a pretty good movie. So what can we say? Jesus in this passage, Jesus exposes two elements of religiosity. And folks, they're the same kind of elements you and I are going to see in our lives. Just mark it down. If you shift into neutral and you tell people, just kind of do what comes naturally, this is what you'll see from religiosity. Number one, you'll see self-righteousness. You'll see a religion that will say, I can or we can. We can do this. And those first two stories break right through that, shatter that wall and say, no, you can't. You are a rebel before a holy God who can be completely forgiven and brought into the family of God and accepted by forgiveness through Jesus Christ. That's why he came and died. You can have that in one moment. Isn't that amazing? Any religion that tells you you must is falsehood. He did so that we can be in relationship with him. So Jesus disrupts an entire religious system that says you can by saying, only I can. And then he disrupts legalism. Legalism, which typically will take good things and layer on top of them. Do you see? Sabbath wasn't bad in their day. It was appropriate. Fasting was fine. Good church, I mean, good spiritual discipline. But when I start saying, you must do it my way when I want you to, or you're not as good a person as I am, blah, 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 blah. You've missed the scripture. Should, um, should you and I, oh, I, one of the things that I thought about, um, my, I, my older brother, dear, godly, sweet guy, was been a pastor for 30-some years. He's just, if you ever meet my brother Scott, he's, just, he's the nicest guy in the world. It's, it's just, he'll love all over you. He's just, just a great guy. But I remember um, when we were young, I, was, I would have just been upper elementary school, that um, Scott, in his zeal to follow the Lord, read a verse in the Bible that said, be sober. And I remember, because my parents were really troubled about it. 
I remember Scott just made a, made a decision that he would never smile again. Because the Bible said, be sober. And I'm going to obey the Bible. And, you know, I thought it was a little strange. I was like in sixth grade, but it still seems strange to a sixth grader. Okay. But for a period of time, you know, he was just like, people would get around him. Scott would say, no, I do, I do not smile and I don't tell jokes. I just, yeah, that's, that's kind of what he, he went through. Now, he did not stay in that phase. He get, by college, he got out of that thing. But there was a period of time he went through that. That would be a total misunderstanding of the fact that the bridegroom has come. Right? And again, like I told you before, folks, that doesn't mean we look at our life and we say, oh, that means everything is wonderful in life. No, life is hard. Opposition comes. Sickness comes. Tense relationships come. All that's true. But as believers in Christ, we have a joyful hope in the midst of all that. So yeah, we're serious at some level, but man, we love jokes because our Lord has come. And we have hope. And we can celebrate what he's actually done for us. Do you see? When I was a teenager, I was involved in a, um, a, a good church, but what had happened for some within that church is they had associated true spirituality with how many services you came to on a Sunday. And like we had a lot of options. We had Sunday school. We had morning worship. We had choir practice in the afternoon. We had a six o'clock hour, which was smaller groups. And then we had an evening service at seven o'clock. I mean, you had five shots in that day to do all kinds of things. And what, what crept in for some people, and, and not, not the leadership so much, but I mean with some people within, what crept in was this idea that I was there five times last week. How about you? Even though that other person who may have come Sunday morning for Sunday school and church or whatever and spent the afternoon ministering to their ailing uh, mother who was in a nursing home, that didn't count. Why not? Why doesn't that count? And you can, take, you can take simple things that are good in and of themselves. Opportunities, fine, good stuff. But don't layer. Don't layer on where you're saying, if you're going to be spiritual, you've got to do a certain number my way. Now, having said that, we want you to come out and be with us. The Bible wants us to get together. Fair enough. But when I'm driving to church on a Sunday, I guess unless I'm preaching, but I don't know if James or Tim are preaching, and I'm driving down, and some guy has a, Something happened to his car and he's trying to get the car, the, the, the tire popped or whatever the case may be. He doesn't have a cell phone. It's not real good for me just to drive by and wave at him and say, hey, sorry, man, I'm on my way to church. Because God wants me to go to church. Well, okay, fair enough. I'm going to stop and help that guy. What if I miss church that day? That's okay. I'm loving my neighbor. Do you see? It's easy to take good things and layer upon them and that becomes even well-meaning, but it can become legalism. And Jesus breaks through all that and he says, you know what? Your greatest need is me, Jesus Christ says. And what you need to see is all of your spiritual disciplines, all of your religious practices, see them through me. And that will help you to wisely make the kinds of decisions you need to make.
you and I live in a world that is no friend of grace. We need to be followers that are consumed with Christ. And so whether people like it or not, because, you know, you've seen that coexist uh, bumper sticker, you know, and it's got every religion on it. People can have whatever they want on a bumper sticker. I mean, that's up to them, whatever. It's not my, it's not my, it's not my call. That's your car. You can do whatever you want. However, it's dead wrong. Because the hope is not religions. The hope is Christ. Do you see? And all of our life is about him, and we move into a world who needs Christ, and with courage and confidence, we keep pointing people to him. And when they look at us and they say, well, you think you're spiritual because you pray and read your Bible. Actually, no, that's something God's called me to do. My life, I am a forgiven sinner who's seeking to get to know my Lord better. Boom, and that's what I do. And that's the message we take into our world. And if it disrupts, it disrupts. Because that's who God's called us to be. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for pointing us again afresh to the wonder of Christ. He is our greatest need, Lord, to know him. He's the one that will keep us focused on what is more and most important and will give us wisdom as we exercise opportunities and spiritual disciplines and practices, as we exercise them wisely for you and to your glory. God, we don't always know what that means in every situation, but maybe we bring it to you. And may we be men and women who not only know the wonder of grace, who not only live the wonder of grace, but seek to share that with everyone we come in contact with. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You're dismissed.